Well, it is awesome to be with y'all for Shabbat. What an important time the Lord has appointed for his people to gather together. It seems almost so difficult sometimes at the end of a long week to come together to tune in our mind and our spirit and to worship the Lord, but it is so important as we close out our our physical week, our work week, to be refreshed for his purpose. So tonight we'll begin in the book of Genesis chapter 1. So if you're in the church's Bible, um, or probably any other Bible, uh, turn with me to page 1. The job that I have right now seems to require that I live by my calendar. And um, I have my calendar on my phone. I have appointment notifications on my watch. I have one of my monitors of my computer seems dedicated to going back and forth to my calendar to see what's next, to plan what's next. And so, Time seems to have the potential for anxiety and for um, stress and for a lot of my attention. So I've been thinking a lot about this time this week as I've been studying for this lesson. I've often thought about time as something that man has invented and not God. In fact, I've even heard that taught that that man has invented or made this concept that we experience called time. But I'm so grateful that the Lord has changed my thinking and giving me given me a new perspective of time and how it doesn't just relate to us, but how time allows us to relate to God. Like the Sabbath, Time was made for man, not man for time. So let's read in Genesis a few verses here in chapter 1, verses 14 through 19. Amidst the creation that God is doing, it says, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and he made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from darkness, and God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So we read that God creates these lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, to be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. So most would read this aspect of the creation account and see that this is when God invented time. 
Also in Genesis, we read how God created according to days. On the first day, he created light. On the second day, sky. On the third day, he created dry lands, seas, plants, and trees. On the fourth day, God created the sun, the moon, and the stars. On the fifth day, sea creatures and flying creatures. On the sixth day, animals and then mankind. But what, we're, what are we really to understand from all of these things God has created according to the days? Is it that God completed a 48-hour work week? Or that God ordered his creation and completed his purpose? Think about this, because we read about these days and then we imagine how days affect our lifetime. So we read into God creating and we kind of think, okay, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. Okay, that's a long week. We want to just work the five days, but God is working the six. And we imagine it like we imagine our own lives filled with calendars full of stuff. Of things that occupy our mind and our flesh and our muscles and our energy. See, we live in a physical world that uses dimensions of time like length and width, height and time. God, though, God exists in a different realm, in the spiritual realm, which is beyond our comprehension. In Isaiah 57, Isaiah calls God the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. In John's gospel, John says that God is spirit. So as a result, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So my point is, is that God is not bound or limited by the physical laws and dimensions that govern us and govern our world. Turn with me to Psalm 90. Psalm 90 on page 683. I love this psalm because Moses is trying to make simple this idea that is grand. Psalm chapter Psalm 90, verse 4, Moses says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. So we live according to the seconds and minutes and hours of the day, but Moses says, For a thousand years in the Lord's sight are like yesterday when it's past like a watch in the night. Moses is trying to make simple that eternity is God is contrasted with the fleetingness that we experience as mankind. In a way, keeping time is, is not a part of God's strategy because he surpasses it. Turn over a couple more pages to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. The psalmist writes in verse 12, 
He says, but you, O Lord, shall endure forever and the remembrance of your name to all generations. Then continue reading with me in verse 24 of chapter 102. I said, O my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. God's perspective is far different than ours. He does not count time as we do. God sees eternity, past and future, simultaneously. That's why we talk about this word olam, and and, and it's so significant to understand because it means forever in the past, and it means forever in the future, and that's how God looks at things. He doesn't look at things and see that it is Friday night at 7.33. For God, eternity and future are seen simultaneously. The time that passes on earth is not consequential to God's perspective or planning. And it's not that God is immune. God doesn't know what time it is for us here. But that time does not constrain or frustrate his ends. Thinking of eternity or the timelessness of God really kind of hurts my head to consider. Right? I've reached the the maximum of what I can stand for that, and it's it's boggling, but it's important that we recognize the way our finite minds, our simple minds with all their knowledge and experience and brain power try to confine our time, try to confine God to our time and our schedule. Psalm 90.10 says, The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is too soon cut off and we fly away. I'll repeat A verse we already read in Isaiah 57, 15. Isaiah says, For thus the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Tonight we're going to read in Ecclesiastes probably the most well-known and famous words of Solomon in all his writings. There is a season and there is a time. And we're going to read about all of these times that Solomon says, but we should begin with this spiritual reality that our years are fleeting and filled with our fleshly labor. Meanwhile, God inhabits eternity. We often put ourselves on the same plane as God, as if God is a part of our thinking, and and as if we are so close to where God is. But we are living in our labors according to our years, and God is living in eternity. So let's turn tonight to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Difficult even to 
to look at some of the words of this chapter without humming the popular tune that many bands in the 70s and 80s have made popular about a time and a season for everything. And even as we kind of imagine the tune and hear the lyrics, it's easy to just kind of go on as if life is ebbing and flowing and there is a course and an order to everything and there is a meaning to life and greatness to, to find in all that we experience. But that could not be further from God's spiritual understanding. There's really three parts to chapter 3 that Solomon lays out. Bill, if you would go ahead and I'm so sorry, put up that, that slide. There's not a lot to it, but, but will allow us to, to kind of see how this chapter is broken up. So we are still in what is called the preacher's investigation of life, or Solomon's investigation of life. And so in chapter 3, there's three, three points that have to do with the purpose of God. So first, in verses 1 through 8, Solomon's going to talk about how there is a time for every purpose. Second, he's going to talk about man's inability to find out God's purpose. And third, he is going to share his frustrations about the injustice and wickedness of man. Okay, let's read together chapter 3. Solomon says, to everything there is a purpose, a time for every purpose, excuse me, let me start over, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I've seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity in their hearts, except no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is already been, that which is, excuse me, that which is, is has already been and what is to be has already been and God requires an account of what is past moreover I saw under the sun in the place of judgment wickedness was where was there and in the place of righteousness iniquity was there I said in my heart God shall judge the righteous and the wicked 
for there is a time for every purpose and every work. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the son of men, sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they shall all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place, and all are from dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? So Solomon hasn't changed his tone from the first two chapters, has he? He is melancholy and sarcastic. He is frustrated. And it's as if he can see this truth right in front of them, him and there remains a choice to make. So in the first section, he talks about their being a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. And he gives this long litany of all of these things that are happening. And I marvel that you could probably do a Google search for this very verse here, and there would be a, a plethora of messages about all of the different things that he mentions. And I see how man is so enamored with all of these things. A time to be born and a time to die. Oh, I wonder what he means. A time for war and a time for peace, right? Books have been written about the extremes of these ideas. He says, to everything, to all, there is a season. A time for every purpose under heaven. So there are two different words that we need to, to zoom in on here in verse 1. Season and time. There is little variety to nearly any translation we have in English between these two words, season and time. The majority use these exact words, season and time. The NIV deviates a little and reverses this order and says, to everything there is a time, comma, a season for every purpose. The New American Standard uses appointed time and then time. Others use an occasion, then a time. The first word here, our New King James translation, uses the word season, which is the Hebrew word zaman, if you're curious. And zaman is a noun that means an appointed occasion, a season, a time. Now it's a noun that comes from a verb that means to consider or to purpose. This word zaman is now the modern Hebrew word for time. If you went to Israel you would ask somebody, what is the zaman? What is the time? Zaman is not to be confused with another word we know, moedim. 
Moedim means appointed times. Moedim has its origin in the creation accounts of Genesis when God put these things in the sky, these lights, for his seasons and times, for his appointed times. Zaman is a different word than that. The next word to look at is in the second part of verse 1. It says, a time for every purpose. This word for time is the word ana. And ana means time. It means an answer. It means a response. In the Old Testament, this word ana is the most commonly used word for time. There are other words that, that could be translated or understood as time, like day or year, that can be used to express a period of, of time. But this word zaman is used elsewhere to mean time as we would understand it. It can also be understood as season. You may be wondering, why is this so confusing, right? I don't know if any of y'all are confused, but I'm almost confused just reading the notes that I've made about this. The answer lies not in Scripture's intention to be confusing, but in our understanding. Because we use words like season and time to use very different things depending on our meaning, our intention, what we want them to mean. Think about the divisions of the year, right? Spring and summer and fall and winter. These are seasons, right? But we also use the word season to symbolically express other things. A season in my life. A season at my job. A season in my relationship. But even these seasons... Summer and spring and fall and winter are greater than the period of time that they encompass. Which is why the, the seasons take place in different months depending on where someone is on the earth, right? Depending on how the earth is orbiting the sun. See, what's important about the seasons is what is happening in those seasons, not when they are, right? It's why we have these fake days where we try and figure out what's going on in the world like Groundhog Day, right? A day full of witchcraft and nonsense, right? To figure out what our earth is doing. What's important about seasons is not when they are, but what is happening. Ask any person who understands agriculture or growing cycles. They don't really care what day of the year it is, what month of the year it is. They care what is happening in the earth. With the conclusion of one season comes the beginning of the next. Every season has a goal, a purpose, and an end, and an end. Likewise, the word for time can mean many different things as well. What time you got? Do you have time? Time is of the essence, right? Time can mean a variety of things depending on context. Time, though, is different from a season, 
right? Because a season we just decided has a goal, an end, and a purpose. But time's purpose is usually to conclude or expire, right? That's why time often generates anxiety. There's either too little time, there's too much time. Things are taking too long, or they're happening too soon. So why would Solomon begin this passage to say, for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose? Here's what the Lord has shown me. The season is a spiritual reality. The time is a physical experience. So God doesn't say for every time, for every physical thing you experience, there is a spiritual season. He says, for every spiritual season, there is a time that you will experience physically. See, God's timing, it operates differently than ours. God is spiritually focused on the end game, the goal, and the result. And we are physically focused on how long things are going to take or how little time we have. The thing is, God's plans are happening. There are seasons happening. His spirit is working. In his work, there is a season to accomplish his ends. How long it takes, that might be up to us. And how long it takes is not a concern to God like it is to us. God is focused on what is happening in that season. We might imagine the two of them happening one on top of another, right? If that's the best we can do is think kind of in a linear fashion. We are living in this lower level of time and God is operating in this upper level of the spiritual realm. They may seem like they're happening at the same time, but they're simply not. Because remember, God dwells in eternity. A day is like a thousand years, and the past is like the future to God. He doesn't care about the minutes and the days and an hour. He cares about the end result. I've been thinking about what we we mean often when we say season versus what God means. Are we being dramatic about our situations romanticizing or camouflaging well it's a season I'm in a season it's a season of this or a season of that allowing us to camouflage what God is trying to do or God is trying to work or romanticizing what we feel like is happening in our life versus what is really accurate in the spiritual realm are we listening are we changing are we aligning with God's purpose sometimes it's so easy to say that we're in a season But are we according to God's purpose in that season? Because God's goals are always the same. I mean, we may not know what his purpose is, but God's purpose is really always the same. God's purpose is his purpose. It doesn't matter whether it has to do with a relationship or a job, or whether it's a car or the weeds in our yard. God's purpose in a season is the same. It's that he might be glorified, whatever that looks like for us. Whether it's change, whether it's deliverance, whether it's stopping something, whether it's starting something, whether it's being born or whether it's dying, whether it's hate or whether it's love, whether it's war and peace, God's end in every season is the same. 
season has nothing to do with the weather. It has nothing to do with our friends. It has nothing to do with anything. The season revolves around him. I imagine this as we we imagine the earth revolving around the sun to order the seasons. The seasons spiritually revolve around nothing but God. In everything, there is a spiritual dimension and a goal that God has. Deborah says again and again that there is for everything in the physical, excuse me, for everything in the spiritual, there is a physical. That is the proper order. The physical is a reflection of the spiritual. We may wonder what is going on in this period of time. Why is this taking so long? Why is this happening so fast? And yet we ignore the season. We ignore that God is doing something in the spiritual realm. It is going to happen whether we allow it to or not. It is going to happen whether we align with it or not. God's end remains the same always. So what Solomon focuses on next is pretty surprising. His focus next is on man's inability to find out God's purpose. He says in verse 9, What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? Solomon again and again is enamored with this idea of labor, of toiling, of, of doing things ourselves. What profit does he have from all the things that he's done? He answers himself and he says, I've seen the God-given task with which the son of men, sons of men are to be occupied. What he's saying is, well, let me keep reading. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity in their hearts, except no one can figure out the work that God does from beginning to end. You hear the frustration in his voice. He's saying God has put eternity in the hearts of men. He has put olam in the hearts of men. It's as if that that idiom or that axiom that there is a, a spiritual hole in us that only God can fill. This is, what, this is what Solomon is saying. He has put eternity, the understanding that we are created for more than this in our hearts, but no one can figure out what God's purpose is. I believe in all that Solomon is staying here, he is stuck in the physical He is stuck according to the physical time, and he is ignoring the things of the seasons. We talked a couple weeks ago how how Solomon asked the Lord early in his life for wisdom, and the Lord began to give him wisdom. And I believe the Lord had intended all the spiritual things for Solomon, but Solomon really only wanted the things of the flesh. The, you know, three accords are better than two, and so on. Likewise, the Lord has given Solomon this understanding right here, yet he's focused on what man cannot do. Man cannot know the heart of God. And that is a certainty. Man and the flesh, according to the things of this physical world, cannot know the heart of God. The heart of God is of the spiritual things. Solomon has seen that God has given this task to seek out God's purpose. But he's frustrated because he sees that no one is able to know the things of God from beginning to end. Hmm. 
I see him so frustrated because he can't know everything. So what is the goal of really knowing anything? Oh, vanity of vanities, to use his words. Why does God act this way? He says, his purposes are unknowable. Verse 11 says he's made everything beautiful in its time. He's put eternity in their hearts. No one can know, no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. God has only given us a glimpse. He says this phrase that, that, that everything is beautiful in its time. I think about how excited I get about the grass greening up and the flowers blooming, right? And we know that Deborah would say, but even those things are cursed, right? We're living in this world that is in some ways a fantasy. These things are just a glimpse of what God desires to offer us, yet we've aligned with Solomon's thinking that all of this is beautiful in its time. And this is as good as it gets. Because he goes on to say, I know that nothing is better for them, in verse 12, to rejoice and to do good in their lives, also knowing every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all of his labor. This is the gift of God. He's saying this is the best this life is going to get in these physical things. I wonder if we'd argue with that. I wonder if we'd argue with that. We know this to be true. The things of this world have reached their plenty in terms of pleasure and fulfillment in our lives. I wonder if we were to marvel at the spiritual works of God in our lives like we do at a cup of coffee on a still porch. Like we do looking out over a sunrise and a sunset. Enjoying the, the spiritual scenery more than just these physical views. In 13 through 15, he says, he says he, he, excuse me, in 14 through 15, he says he knows that. He says in 14, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away for it. God does it that men should fear before him. So he, he recognizes God's authority, God's power. He recognizes that in the physical, that God has a purpose for all of these things, right? that there is an olam to everything, that there is an eternal perspective on everything, yet he's frustrated by it. As easy as it would be to, to criticize and judge that, I wonder if we hold that to be true. We know better. We know that God has eternity at mind and all the things that he's doing for his purpose in us, yet we listen to the things that are temporary that are fleeting. The last passage that, the last section, is that he kind of digs in his heels on his frustration. He says, Moreover, I saw under the sun, and the place of judgment, wickedness, was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity is there. He's saying that really nothing works out the way it should. And the place of sin and the place where righteousness should be, sin is there. And the place where there should be justice, unrighteousness prevails. Why does God allow all this? Why do bad things happen to good people? 
Why do bad things happen to people who are believers? Why do things not work out the way we want? He sees things the way they are. He sees that man are really no better than animals. He goes on, he said, he says in, in, um, in verse 18, I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. Hmm. He sees that man is really no better than the, the beasts of the field or the birds of the air. What makes us special is that, that we can have fellowship with the Lord. See, he's not even seeing that. He's seeing a time to be born and a time to die, and it relates equally to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He's seeing in the physical only. We can have fellowship with the Lord and we can choose salvation. He, he concludes this with a similar word as he said before. Verse 22, so I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice for his own works, that for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? So this is the best we can do is to worry about our name, to worry about our title to worry about our status to worry about what we'll leave to those who will pass after us to leave to those who will read about us after we're gone this is as good as it gets if this is true that is depressing but i want us to hear the reality that even being here does not guarantee anything better than that even singing the songs that we do and reading the scriptures that we do and calling upon the name of the Lord does not guarantee more than that. Does not guarantee more than us dying like animals that we see on the way here on the side of the road. This week I've been trying to, to reconcile this confusing way that Solomon seems to possess these potentially incredible spiritual truths like seasons versus time and how this same person can transition to saying I've seen what my purpose here on earth is and I really see that it's meaningless because God wants me to have a, a grasp on eternity but I can't really understand all the things that he wants me to understand and so what good is it? How do we reconcile such a person? We look in a mirror. Because God has given us salvation truths. And they stare us in the spiritual face all day and all week and all that the times we live. And unless we press into the seasons that the Lord is working in our lives, we can look back from that, we can see back from that mirror and remain unchanged. We can remain like Solomon, possessors of great understanding and practicers of complete vanity.
in his own words, I believe that the Lord inspires Solomon to understanding and he misses it. See, he's right that God has put eternity in our hearts, but not to taunt us. He's right that whatever God does is forever, but it's not so we'll focus on eating and drinking and being merry. He's right that men are like animals and destined to die no better than a dog on the street, but not that we'd remain that way. Verse 10 tells us that God has given us the task with which to be occupied. This is the meaning of life. This is the meaning of Ecclesiastes to uncover what is our purpose in life. And I think Solomon understands it to a degree that he wants to. It is not a a, a court, excuse me. How we're to be occupied is not to live according to time, but to seasons. I pray that we would grab a hold of this goodness of God that we would abandon the time of the world, the bondage of the physical things, and that we would long for these seasons which our Creator has given us according to His purpose. Amen.